We are in the book of Ephesians, past the halfway mark, and today is going to be extremely practical. And before we get into the extremely practical, um, 30 seconds to review sort of the key theme or principle that we've been interpreting the book through. There's a big giant Greek word, anakaphyliosistai, and you don't need to know that word in Greek or know how to read that. What you need to know is the importance of the word. It's translated underneath to unite. And it's this idea that in Christ, God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth. And I want to remind everyone the radical nature of that claim. The first Christians were going around the Roman Empire declaring that in and through the crucified Jewish Messiah, the one who died the slave's death, it's in and through him that God the Father is actually bringing all things together. Things that are at war, things that are intention and friction, heaven and earth at odds, Jews and Gentiles at odds, male, female, husbands, wives, everyone's at odds and there's tension throughout the created order. But in and through the crucified son, Jesus, God is uniting all things and bringing them under the banner of the crucified one. Now, last week we talked about how Paul says that the crucified one is the head of the body and the head is currently ruling and reigning in heaven. And the question then arises is how does Jesus as the head of the body rule and reign down on earth? And again, the other radical claim was that God is ruling and reigning on earth as he does in heaven through his body, and his body is the church. Therefore, whether you feel like it or not, you as a follower of Jesus are the means and mechanism by which God is reconciling the world through his people. You may not feel like it today. You might not even want to be given that responsibility. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you are the body of Christ. And Christ extends his rule and reign in this broken world through his people, his citizens, his adopted family. Now the question then going forward is, how do we go about doing that? What does that look like? And in chapter four, verse 17, Paul is going to continue what he started previously and lay out what does it look like to be a Christian. And it's gonna be startling and challenging because what it means to be Christian is a whole nother mode of being. It marks you as distinct from the rest of creation. And with that, the responsibility of living a certain life. And that's what's laid before us today. Ephesians chapter four, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now first sentence, it's already mind-blowing. It's easy to pass this up, but he says, I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. Now, if you've been here, we've talked about what is a Gentile. A Gentile is anyone who's not ethnically Jewish. So 99% of the world's population. And Paul's saying, don't walk like the Gentiles. Don't walk like them. Now, from last week, who is Paul primarily writing to in this book? Jews or Gentiles? There's definitely Jews there, but there's a whole lot of Gentiles because in the previous chapter, Paul basically said, don't you all forget you weren't even a part of this, Gentiles. In the Old Testament, it's God and Israel. But the great mystery that has been revealed is that everyone gets to know the one true God. So he's writing to Gentiles, people who are not ethnically Jewish, and then he says, hey, Gentiles, don't walk like Gentiles. And you would think then, then okay, are we supposed to be Jewish then? Maybe we, we become, if we're not supposed to be Gentiles, there's only two categories, Jews, Gentiles, maybe we should be Jewish. And then the next question arises is, well, does Paul want these Gentiles to become Jewish? Is he telling them, hey, now you need to get circumcised. Now put away the bacon and the pork rinds. Now stop, you, you have to obey Sabbath law. Paul is not telling Gentiles, you now must become Jewish ethnically to be saved. He doesn't want them to get circumcised. doesn't want them to do this. So the question is, well, then what, is, what, what are we? If you don't want us to be like Gentiles and you don't want us to be Jews, what are we to be? And he's going to get at this later, but suffice to say for now, 
the first Christians were going around the Roman Empire and saying, again, that in and through the crucified one, God is bringing all things together, but that in and through the crucified one, God is making a new humanity. It's a new humanity. It's no longer Jew or Gentile. It's the thing that transcends those categories. For there is now neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. And we're going to see what Paul maps, how Paul maps this out later. There's a new way to be human. It's a neither Jew nor Gentile, slave, free, male, female type of thing. And we'll get to that in a moment. But he goes on and he's saying, like, you can't walk like these Gentiles. You, you need to live holy. You have to live a life that looks different. Now, in the Old Testament, God's people were called to be different. They were called to be holy. They were called to be distinct. How were Jewish people in the Old Testament marked out as different? Well, there's a number of ways, but there were some easy ways you could tell if someone was Jewish in the Old Testament. One, if you saw one of the dudes naked, there was a clue. Okay? Two, their dietary laws. They wouldn't eat like the rest of the world. They'd have different types of restrictions. Three, um, if you couldn't see one naked and you couldn't eat with a Jewish person, you'd wait till a certain day and see if they stopped working. These are just three things, and there's tons of them. But there were tons of markers that let you know this is Israel. These are Jewish people. They're marked out to be holy before their God. Now, in the New Testament, we just established this, the first Christians aren't saying, hey, all you Gentiles, you better not eat this way, you gotta get circumcised, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. They're not doing that. So how does a New Testament Christian mark themselves out as God's holy people to the world? And what Paul's gonna lay out is that it's by your behavior. You are going to live in a different way, which again is a challenging statement for all of us. Because in the Old Testament, again, you knew someone was Jewish because they, they had this type of beard, they didn't cut their hair this way, they didn't have this type of dietary laws, all these things. Now, how does someone know you're a Christian? By the way you live. So does the world know who you are? By the way you live. You are supposed to be marked out as distinct. When you follow the teachings of Jesus, it should look so different that people go, there's something weird about that person. They ain't like the rest of us. There's something different there. And I'll give you an example. This is an easy one. But say, for example, the teaching of Jesus to love your enemy and pray for them, bless them. That's not normal human operation. That's not your default mode as a human being. When your enemy does something to you, your default nature is to attack. That's the mode of humanity, right? Don't lie to yourself. I would never. Yes, you would. <laughs> I mean, just put yourself in any environment that's frustrating. Put yourself in a traffic jam. And how easily, look at how, this is how, how weird human beings are. You could be watching your team playing a game and say a bad call is made. The ref blows a call that loses the game for him. You, get, you feel it. I mean, I mean literally, your arms are charged with power and you're ready to, to break necks, man. You're ready to go. And I mean all of this literally, right? Do, your, do you not feel it in your body? And is it not charged with extra power? And the human being, the default operating system says, charged with power, and attack. For Christians, you love your enemy. You bless them and you pray for them. Now that's just one example, but when you take all the teachings of the New Testament and Jesus and the apostles, it's, it's supposed to create a human being that looks differently, that looks different than the rest of humanity. And the question for you today is, is that the case? Do people know you're different? Paul in verse 19 says, the world, as they practice more and more sin, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Key word here is callous. 
sin has the ability, as you commit more and more of it, to, to build calluses on your conscience. And it makes you numb to human evil, where you do it long enough, you get a generation of people who are just like, they see evil and they go, whatever, who cares? By the way, does that sound familiar? I said, whatever, what are we gonna do about it? It's the way it always is. And you wanna be sensitive to evil because you also live in a, in a time and place where technology is helping you build those calluses at an accelerated rate. Because back in the day, you might hear of one horrible evil thing and that was it. You didn't hear anything else for the rest of the day because that messenger from the village 20 miles away told you and then that was it. But you live now where you can go through a news stream and hear horrible thing after horrible thing after horrible thing and you just process 10 things in 10 minutes that you should not have processed in an entire year. And so, huh, we're gonna do about it. It's all evil. Everyone's bad, whatever. Who cares? Paul says, don't, let, don't become callous. Do not become calloused. But that is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, verse 22 is what I wanna zoom in on. It says to put off your old self. Now, the word here for self can be translated in a number of ways, and I think it's a disservice to us to translate it as self. The Greek word is anthropos. Now, you don't need to know Greek or anything, but does anthropos sound like an English word? Anthropology, study of humans and humanity, human beings. So, anthropos could be translated as self. It could also be translated as man. But when I say man, I don't mean like an individual man, right? I mean as mankind. And, and when I mean mankind, what I really mean is humanity. Humanity. And so Paul is hinting at something here. You are to put off the old, not self, humanity. You put off the, the old humanity because the old humanity is bound up in a certain human being. And the word that the biblical authors use to describe this human being is Adam, which in Hebrew, by the way, means humanity. So there's a first Adam that you encounter in Genesis. And you, before you are in Christ, are a part of this Adam, this humanity. But the biblical authors and the first Christians say that there was a second, a second Adam and who is the second Adam? Jesus is the second Adam, the second human. And so Paul is saying, you as a believer in Christ Jesus are to put off the old Adam, put off the old humanity, get it off, and put on the new humanity, which is in Jesus. You get rid of the first Adam and clothe yourself in the second. Take off the old humanity and put on the new to put off your old humanity which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed by the spirit of your minds and to put on the new humanity. It's a whole new, and when, when you live under Jesus and his banner and strive to follow after his ethical commands, you are participating in a new type of humanity and the world should be able to tell. Now, quick, quick thing about newness. When you get something new, it actually has the power to change how you feel about yourself. And when you change the way you feel about yourself, that has the power to change how you behave. So think of getting something new and how it changes how you think about yourself. Now some of you may already be thinking like, getting a new car, and it's like, yeah, it changed me, man. I used to get no speeding tickets, and now I, you know, now I got tons of speeding tickets. Don't even think a big category like getting a new car. Think about getting a new pair of jeans. Okay, gotta be, some of you are gonna lie to yourself right now, right? Be honest. If you get a new pair of jeans 
that fit well and they feel good and they look good? Have you noticed that as you leave the door, you actually sort of feel a little bit better about yourself? Some of you are acting like you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you know, you're honest. Okay, this happens with uh, you get a new shirt that fits good, or if you get a new haircut. You know, the last haircut, you thought it was gonna look good, it didn't, and then it's like, I'm, I stuck with this for like three months. And then you finally can go back to your old style, and then you feel, feel good. You, I have a, a friend who's a barber, and, and he cuts hair downtown Gilroy, his name's Isaiah. Um, great dude, great, great barber, but he talks about how it brings him joy when he cuts someone's hair, he can actually see when they leave, they, they feel a little bit more confident. Um, and if you ever get, um, if you ever shave, uh, if you ever go to a barber, or maybe you do this yourself, you get, you get like a legit, the, the, sh- the straight edge razor, you know, where it's like, it's kind of scary because you're like, the barber could actually kill me right now. But like a really good shave on a beard, it feels good. It physically feels good. And as you leave, like they put some stuff on you that smells good. And it's like, feel a little bit better. Okay? You feel a little bit better. So the point, even something as small as a new pair of pants, a haircut, a shave, can make you feel differently about yourself. Now, what is Paul saying? He said, you were clothed in old humanity. That humanity was tied to the first Adam. There is sin, there is shame, there is fault and failure all wrapped in those clothes. When you put on that old humanity, all of that's there. However, Jesus is clothing you with new things. And the description of these new things, verse 24, last sentence, put on the new humanity, clothe yourself in the new garments, and these ones are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So do you feel the shift there? First humanity, in Adam, sin, fault, shame, all the the bad things, the gunk, all of that stuff. And then Jesus comes along, gives you new clothes, new humanity, and those clothes are made in the very likeness of God and they are righteous and they are holy. So when you put on those new clothes, you put on that new humanity and when you tell yourself, man, I got it, I got some new jeans, I got a new haircut, it's that but times a thousand. It's I am no longer who I was. Whatever I've done, whatever's been done to me, however I failed, whatever shame I carry, that's not me anymore. I have something new today, and it's Christ, his holiness, his righteousness. And that changes how you view yourself, and it changes your identity. And when you do that, you are more likely to behave in a manner that reflects the one who gave you those clothes, the new humanity. And so Paul then shifts and says, when you put on these new clothes, you are to behave in such a manner. And there's gonna be, this list of saying, don't do this stuff and do this stuff. This is the old humanity. These are the old clothes. This is the new stuff. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So I've underlined the elements here. You'd stop doing this and then you do this. First, the old man is a liar. The old humanity lies and commits falsehood. But the new humanity, the new you, is one to speak the truth. Now, oftentimes in the Bible, people read stuff like this, man. They just go right on. Oh, yeah, I know not to lie, and I should tell the truth. That, that one's easy. Get on to something that's, that's harder than that. Now, I can't speak for everyone in the room, but I'll speak for the majority. I'm sure there's some of you who don't do this. 
but do you realize how often you lie? Now, automatically, some of you, and the research is there to prove it, in your brain, there's already a neurological response because you've been accused of something and you've created an alternate narrative in your brain to convince yourself that you don't lie. There's, you can read up on this, man. That's how quick we defend ourselves. People lie all of the time. And the reason why we don't think we're liars is because we don't tell like big lies or flat out lies. Like, were you at the dentist today? No, I was not at the dentist today. I've never been to the dentist. But human beings, we stretch the truth. We don't tell the whole truth. We talk about someone when they're not around with a, with a little hot sauce on it. Just, just to maybe mark their character just a little bit. We exaggerate our accomplishments just a little bit. Graduated with a 4.0. 3.97. I rounded up. What's the big deal? <laughs> to speak the truth all of the time is very difficult. It is extremely difficult. And we're going to come back to this later because I want to illustrate how easy it is we lie and how often we do it. And then to be very practical, I want to walk through an exercise on how you could combat the sin in your life. In that, in that instance, we'll walk it through lying, but the, the activity will work for many things. Telling the truth is hard. It's very difficult. Be angry and do not sin. No longer steal, but labor doing honest work. So again, the old stuff, you don't steal anymore. But it's not enough just to not do the bad thing. If you're a Christian, you're the new human, you also work hard. And you don't just work hard to make money for yourself. What are you working hard to do? To share with anyone in need. Now question, does the world share with anyone in need? Is that the default operating system? Is it yours? It ain't yours either. It's no one's default operating system. But when you're made new in Christ, you're supposed to be walking in the new humanity, the second Adam. And what do Christians, how are they marked out? This member, go back to circumcision and Sabbath. How are we marked out? One of the ways that we're marked out is we're a people who share with those in need. We share with those in need because that's not our default operating system. He goes on, continuing the list. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Same thing as the previous one. What is he saying not to do and then what are we to do? First, no corrupt talk. It's like, not just don't lie, don't slander, don't put people down, don't shame people, don't do any of that stuff. And in turn, let your speech be used for building people up. And he goes on and says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, a lot of debate about what grieving the Holy Spirit is. And some of you might have wondered that. There's several different interpretations. But I'll just tell you what I think this is getting at. And I'll do that through um, a personal story. So years, years, I still remember it pretty clearly. It was years ago. Pro I was... I don't know, man, dang, maybe it was like 20 years ago. I don't know. You know, there's a certain point with kids where between like five, and five years and 30 years, it could be anywhere on that timeline. You don't really know. And typically, dads are the worst at it, at under, discerning, because this was like two years ago. And then mom would be like, hun, that was 27 years ago. <laughs> so I'm at that point now. So I was walking at Gilroy High, I was by myself, I was walking home, I don't know what I was doing, but uh, big giant green field, huge, 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 and I, I see a piece of trash on the ground, and I walk by. I don't care, piece of trash, there's trash everywhere, okay? Then like 50 yards, 100 yards up, I like, go pick up the trash. I, I get that conviction. I get a conviction, 
to go pick up the piece of trash. Now, immediately I'm going, there's trash everywhere. It'll make a difference, go pick up that like flaming hot Cheeto bag or Dorito bag, whatever it was. It doesn't matter, it makes no difference. And I get this conviction. Now, I don't, I'm not saying like I heard God say, my son, go picketh up the Dorito <laughs> bag. I just felt I should go pick it up. And to be fair, I do, it might have not even been the Holy Spirit. It could have been my own conscience. Who knows? I do think it was a conviction from the Spirit, but I, I, I can't be certain on that. But here's the point. I didn't want to go back and pick that. It, it was irrelevant. It didn't even make a difference. But I listened to that conviction, and I went, angrily picked it up, threw it in a garbage, and let the sun go down on my anger later. Um, <laughs> but here, here's the point, okay? When the Holy Spirit convicts you, you ought to listen. And the reason is this, that might have not been a big deal, but when you do not listen to that conviction in this area, you're gonna be more likely to not listen in this area, and more likely not to listen to this area, and all the way your character is being chipped away at, so that when it actually matters, you don't have the moral backbone and, backbone and fortitude to do what you need to do. It chips away at you, it chips away at your character. And the Holy Spirit could be convicting you of sin in your life and you turn it off, turn it off, turn it off till you get to a point where you don't even feel the conviction anymore. And some of you have experienced that in life. You were in sin and you knew it and you didn't take care of it. And then it got out of hand and then you didn't even care. You became calloused to the evil in your life. So even in the small things, you listen. Go pick up the piece of trash and throw it away because I don't want to be at a place down the road where I don't even feel the conviction anymore. You'd be faithful in those small things. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You put that away, and then what are you to put on? Kindness, tenderheartedness, a forgiving nature. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. So you get how the logic of this is working. There's an old self that's tied in the first human, the first Adam. That person has to die and you put on the new clothing. And when you put on the new humanity and the new clothing, you ought to behave in a manner that reflects that truth. And I'm sure Paul can make this list go on and on and on, but this is just enough for now. Because doing this is hard enough. What I'd like to do is go through one thing that he listed and do a very practical exercise on how you can fight the good fight in putting down the old self and putting on the new. And it has to do with the very nature of the gospel. Oftentimes, we think of the gospel. The gospel is the announcement, the story, the proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we think about the gospel as the first step into the house. As if, you know, you're not a Christian and then you hear the gospel, now I believe in the gospel, I've gone through that door and now I'm there to explore the rest of the house, the rest of Christianity. You follow that? It's like, the gospel, I prayed this prayer and now I'm a Christian and I've gone through the door of the gospel and I have access to all the other rooms in the house. All this other stuff about Christianity. And what you need to understand is that the gospel is not just the front door of the house, it's the entire house. Or another way of speaking of it is, oftentimes we think the gospel, the, the first step in becoming a Christian is like the letters A, B, C. But the gospel is not just the first three letters of the alphabet, the gospel is the entire alphabet. And through that alphabet, the language of the gospel, you are to articulate truth. The gospel is the entire house, it's the entire alphabet. And what I mean by that for us today is this, if you want to put on the new clothing, if you want to live like the new humanity, you must learn to preach the gospel to yourself and to others every single day, all of the time, consistently and continually. You don't hear the gospel and then advance to greater things. 
you always must learn to preach and teach yourself the gospel every single day. It's not like there's preachers who preach the gospel on a Sunday morning. If you are a Christian, you must learn to teach and to preach yourself the gospel message every single day. Additionally, you are to do it to one another. In Romans 1, Paul is writing to Christians, and he says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, and here's the key, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, and he is eager to get there so that he can preach the gospel to them. Because even though they're Christians, the answer to whatever problem they may have is the gospel. You don't get the gospel degree and move on to higher education. The gospel is the education itself from start to finish. Now, that may be hard to picture in the abstract as I'm talking about, so let's make it extremely practical here. I'd like to take one of those things listed by Paul, saying, let's say here, truth-telling, not to lie and speak the truth. And what I've done is map those out and show how there's not only lies, but there's different types of lies, and then there's motives behind those. And what I'd like to do is walk through the different types of lies and the root, their motive, and then show you how you must preach and teach and apply the gospel to yourself in each particular situation, if you want to put off the old and get on with the new. So, starting off, the cruel lie, all right. This type of lie is a lie that's motivated by hate. And this is where you don't like someone, you hate them. And you take any opportunity you get to say something bad about them to hurt them, to ruin their reputation, to, to cost them their job, whatever it may be, you do not like this person, you hate them, and given the opportunity, you lie about them. You lie about them. You know? So-and-so, Bubba, saw him kick a puppy yesterday. They kicked a puppy. And it was an American bulldog, not a chihuahua, so it counted <laughs> as a dog. It counted as a dog, not a rodent, so it's next level offense. It's a next level offense. You know, that's a silly example, but I'll give you an example from my life. Uh, I've hated people. Um, I'm not gonna name which staff members right now, but um, I've hated people, okay? And there's been dudes who, who I don't like, and, and there, there is one in particular who, who I hated, I didn't like, and I actually had good reason not to like them. You know, that's what makes this difficult. It's one thing to hate someone uh, that you know deep down is actually a good person, you just kinda don't like them. It's a whole nother thing um, to try and not hate someone when they, in a sense, deserve it. You've been wronged, they've wronged you, and they've wronged people you love. So I've had people that have wronged me and wronged people that I love, and so I hated this person. Whatever opportunity I got, man, I slandered, I gossiped. Half of it was true though, you know? So you didn't feel that bad, but you know, you, you go above and beyond because you, you want to hurt this, you want, to, you want other people to, to feel the same way you feel about them. They're not a good person. And so I gossiped and I slandered for several years. And then uh, I got a conviction that I should reach out to that person and apologize for slandering them. Now keep in mind, in a sense, a lot of what I said was true. But it wasn't my place to say it, right? And secondly, I said a lot of things that probably weren't true, they just added fuel to the fire. So I get this conviction. I, do I really need to apologize to this person who has wronged me and wronged others? And the conviction was like, yeah. And you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Because if you walk away from reaching out and not forgiving in that moment, you're more likely to do the same thing the next time. And you do that a thousand times over your life, you may end up dying a cold, bitter person with a lot of hate in your heart. 
So I called the person up and just basically, you know, I've said a lot of bad things about you. Can you forgive me? Now, that didn't mean that all the bad stuff wasn't true, but what it meant was that's between that person and God. But who am I to slander someone made in the image of God? So how do I stop lying about that person and how do I ask for their forgiveness? You gotta learn to preach the gospel to yourself. How does that work? You tell yourself, what is the gospel? Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What does that mean for me? That Christ died for me while I was his enemy. I didn't deserve it. I should not be receiving the forgiveness of God. I should be receiving his justice and his punishment. So I, I don't get to hate this person because I hated God and God forgave me. And if Christ can forgive someone like me, who am I to withhold that forgiveness to someone else? Now this is easier said than done. This is why you also have to learn to preach the gospel to, you, to each other. You gotta say, hey, look, I know this is difficult. But let's go back to, to what Christ has done for us. He forgave us when he didn't deserve it. Now note, notice what I'm saying here. I am not saying you forget wrongs done as if they, didn't, they weren't wrong. That's, there's like a weak forgiveness that just says, oh, it's no, you know, some of you do that and you're lying when you do that. It's no big deal. It was a big deal and you just lied. You lied to yourself and to that person. And if, you know, to further illustrate that, if you keep saying it's no big deal when it really is, you know how deep that stuff gets in you? And after 10 years of being walked over, then you just explode? So you acknowledge evil and you don't make it nothing, but you own up to what you've contributed to said evil. I've wronged you in this area, forgive me, and you give the rest to God. And you do that, you inspire yourself and empower yourself by reminding yourself of what Christ did for you when you did not deserve it. And when you preaching to yourself isn't strong enough, you get others in your life to remind you of gospel truth. Secondly, there's a, a cowardly lie, and this one is, is rooted in fear. And for many of us, this comes in different angles, but some of it's very difficult because you learned this behavior as a survival mechanism as a child. Meaning, when dad came home and you saw that he was drinking and he asked you a question, you gave him the right answer, even if it wasn't true. And so you learn from a very young age to lie to survive. And the problem with that is, is that you leave childhood and now you just have this pattern of lying always to protect yourself and to survive. But trust me, in doing so, you're not surviving, you're actually killing yourself. Because that's what lies do to you over time. And so, you could be that person who had the rough childhood or you could just be afraid of, say, something like losing your job. Your boss comes and says, hey, did you, did, you, did you send out those email? Did you send out that email this morning? It was very important. Oh, of, of course, we sent out that email right away as soon as, as, soon as you told me to. <laughs> sent the email, boss. You know what I mean? Do you realize how often you do those types of lies? Just, it's not worth it right now. It's, it's not worth telling the truth but it's chipping away at who you are. It is not the new humanity that works like that. And so what do you do? You remind yourself of the gospel. Your greatest problem, the one thing you should be afraid of in life, the big problem, that's been resolved. Do not fear men who can destroy your body. What does Jesus say? Fear the one who could destroy your soul in hell. How about that for a good Sunday morning message? So, so follow this here. It is not that you have too much fear. It's that you're putting your fear in the wrong person. But when you fear God and then he tells you to stand down because I've taken care of the biggest problem. I have saved you from your sin. I have adopted you into my family and nothing in heaven or hell can change that. You can approach life's fear differently. And, I'm, and for the New Testament Christians, it's not just like oh, fear of job security. Paul talks about suffering and death. 
Paul says, suffering and death, they're real and they're hard. But even suffering and death is but a momentary blip compared to the eternal glory that's been prepared for you. You were purchased with blood and your biggest problems have been taken care of. Therefore, the scriptures tell you to fear not. The third type of lie, a conceited lie. Conceited is a strong word, but what I really mean here is there's lying that we do based upon insecurity and there's a type of person that fits, like, fits this to a T. Um, it's the person who always just exaggerates just a little and has to one-up everyone just a little. So it's like, dude, I went out to Coyote the first time back fishing. Man, I did so good. I caught, like, I caught a 13-inch bass, 15-inch bass, caught some crappies. And then there's that dude who's like, oh, yeah, I was, you know, I was there too. You mean my toddler, man, we were slaying big, like huge 18-inch big mouth bass, man. Those are some nice guppies you caught, man. Those are, do you, you know what I'm talking, they always have to one-up just a little, just a little. The story is always better than what actually occurred, just a little. Or sometimes it's not a exaggeration, but it's an always just putting down. And it's different than, it's not that you hate someone else, but you put them down because you're so insecure, you just have to lift yourself up just a little. Oh, yeah. You know, they, she really tried, and you know, I think most people liked it, but I heard some, some, some people saying negative things. That it, it's just, it's like putting someone down to lift yourself up. And it's rooted in insecurity. This happens uh, among pastors, a lot. If you get a bunch of pastors together, um, they're all insecure about who's the best pastor. And they all want their church to be doing well and to be the best one. And so they're all wondering how everyone's church, how's your church doing? And it's not, how's your church doing, bro? Are you okay? How can we help? It's, how's it going? How's the church doing? And it's like, and they all, they, all the pastors want to ask a specific question. And they're all acting like they don't want to ask this specific question. They all want to. They want to ask, so how big is your church? Because <laughs> many of us are insecure and we're, we're just, you know, you're just trying to still prove yourself to God. And maybe it's still, in, and in that weird way, you're still trying to prove yourself to your dad or your mom. It's funny how, how complex we are. And so pastors, you know, I know this because I, I, obs- I observe it, I see it. I mean, we do crazy things like the way we even count Sunday attendance, man. We try to cheat, like, cheat the numbers. Like, you know, well, how many people are at church on Sunday? Let's get a count. It's like, well, how do we do the count? Well, let's get them when they're in the room. Yeah, but you know what? I saw, um, you know, the Whitakers, they, they were at first service, but then they fellowshiped, which is a Christian thing, all the way into the first song of second service. Double count it. They were there, double count. Count it up. You know, count all the staff, count, the, count everyone. Get this number as high as you can. Hey, you know what else? Find out which women in the church are pregnant. We're pro-life, count it. Count them, count them little, oh, you don't believe they're human? Count them. She could have twins, you don't know, count it. And it's like, who are, you, who are you trying to find approval from? Where are you trying to find acceptance? What are you trying to prove, man? And this is where the gospel comes in. Do you not know what the gospel says? You are already approved. You are already accepted. You are already loved right now. Who are you trying to do this for? And it's anyone from little kids to pastors and everyone in between. We'll lie and exaggerate and twist and put others down because we're just insecure. And it's like, you were already approved and accepted and loved. So stand down. And lastly, there's, there's a calculated lie. Um, and this is rooted in selfishness. It's not necessarily that you're, you put someone down because you hate them or you're insecure, but you just, you just want to get ahead in life. You know, so you're competing in the workplace, you're trying to climb the corporate ladder, and so, you know, you're going to, hey, hey man, 
I, you know, I really shouldn't be bringing this to you, but because, um, you know, I don't want to ruin the employee boss relationship. But when you're not around, man, all the other people on the team, they just talk bad about you, man. I try to defend you. And you're just trying to get, you're trying to get the promotion. You will lie all your way up that corporate ladder. By the way, are people doing everything they can in our culture to climb up the corporate ladder? And often at times you're lying and cheating, neglecting your family all the way just enough by the time you get there, your soul is dead. So what does the gospel have to say about this? What are you trying to get ahead? You're trying to, what are you trying to get? You're trying to get more money? You're trying to get more prestige? You're trying to get a better title? Don't you know what the gospel has done for you? Why are you striving after breadcrumbs from the corporate ladder when Christ has given you the riches of his grace? You are seated presently in the heavenly places. You've been adopted into the family of the king. What are you trying to get ahead of? And what are you sacrificing to get ahead? A sacrifice has already been made for you so that you could be accepted and seated with Christ in the heavenly places as a son or daughter. So what are you doing this for? And again, sometimes you don't have the strength and the wisdom to tell yourself. So that's, that's the body of Christ. You learn to do it to each other. And you preach the gospel into each other's lives. Now, again, this is easier said than done, but as you do this day by day, you're building habits. And your habits, the more truth you tell, the easier it'll be to tell the truth. The more lies you tell, the easier it'll be to tell lies. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to shape your character around the new human, the new humanity that Christ has given you. And you preach the gospel to yourself. And you, one of the easiest and best ways to do this is you memorize gospel scriptures, things from the Bible that tell you what you get as a Christian because of Christ's work. And, and, you, and you feed those scriptures into, into your heart, into your mind, and you do it again and again and again. By the way, when Jesus was tempted, what was his defense? When Jesus is tempted by Satan in the desert while fasting, he quotes scripture. I want to read some scriptures for you as we, as we get ready to close and, and transition into communion and one last worship song. I want to read these scriptures over you. These scriptures are God's truth for you today. And everyone in here has got different stuff before them, different sins they're struggling with. Some of you are anxious, some of you are fearful, some of you have hate, bitterness, you're worried, whatever it may be, I want to read God's truth over you. This isn't the words of men. These aren't just mere principles to live your life by. This is God's truth, God's word for you today. And as you hear these words, take them in, allow them to redress you in the new clothes, in the new humanity. So whatever you may be going through today, this is God's word for you. For we know we can cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. We know if we dwell in the shelter of the Most High, we will abide in the shadow of the Most High. We will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, Psalm 91. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. And we know in times of desperation, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, Psalm 34. And we know that in this world, we will have trouble, but in him, we can have peace because he has overcome the world. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The old clothing is gone. You are to take it off and you are to put on the new. The new humanity. So Whatever is in your past, whatever former identities rage war against your soul, you have a new way to look at yourself. You've been giving, given the clothing that is made in the likeness of God himself and it is righteous and holy. All that stuff is dead. Therefore, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. And when you understand these gospel realities and truth, mark my words, you are more likely not to lie. You are more likely to forgive. You are more likely not to steal. And you are more likely to mark yourself out as a Christian so that when the world looks at you, they know there's something different about you. Please stand as we take communion. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. His body was broken so that he could make all things, including you, new. As we take this and remember Jesus, know his body is broken so that our body could be clothed with his righteousness. Jesus takes the cup and says, this is the blood of the new covenant. As long as you take this, you are promising, you are pledging an allegiance to to declare the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so Lord, we want to declare your death and resurrection until you return, not only with our words, but we want to demonstrate ourselves to be your people by the life lived. And Father, as we close with worship, may your son be exalted and may your spirit convict us of sin, comfort us, empower us to confront what we need to confront, remind us of your love and your grace and your truth and put us on the road of the new human that we would walk differently. We give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.